This is Radio Health Journal. I'm Reed Pence. This week, education, income, and lifespan. They're more entwined than you may think. If you don't finish high school in this country, you live on average, all other things being equal, six years less than someone who graduates college. Income and life expectancy when Radio Health Journal returns. This week is National Influenza Vaccination Week. The American College of Physicians advises adults to get an annual flu vaccine, but it's a chance for even more, according to ACP President Dr. Nitin Domley. Immunizations guard against serious health problems. Seeing your internist for an annual flu vaccine also provides the perfect opportunity to discuss any other recommended adult vaccinations that you might need. Adults need vaccines too, so take the opportunity to protect yourself against the flu and more. Find out more at acponline.org. For most of the last hundred years, American life expectancy has been on a slow increase. In the early 1920s, the average person could expect to live to around 60. Today, life expectancy is nearly 80. Even since 1960, life expectancy has arisen by about eight years. But not everyone is enjoying the same increase. Overall, life expectancy is increasing, but in many places, and for many people, it's not. In U.S. counties, in a recent period, almost 42% of the counties showed actually falling life expectancy for women. That's Dr. David Kindig, Emeritus Professor of Population Health Sciences at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His studies show that counties where life expectancy is dropping are almost invariably poor. Where lives are getting longer is in richer counties. We actually find across counties by income, there can be a three or four-fold difference in mortality rates from high to low income counties. You know, life expectancy differences due to social factors that can be as much as five, six, eight years of life expectancy, depending on the situation. I mean, it varies a bit from study to study, but education and income are often found to be as strong a predictor of life expectancy as, say, smoking rates or obesity or some of our behaviors. On average, Americans in the top 5% of income can expect to live about nine years longer than those in the bottom 10%. Dr. Michael Reich is the Daniel Thurs Distinguished Professor of Social Justice at the University of Maryland. To put it at the most local level in the city that I'm sitting in right now in Baltimore, two neighborhoods that are pretty much equidistant from my office, but are only two and a half miles apart have average life expectancies that differ 20 years between those two neighborhoods, regardless of race, based solely on income. Just to give you one specific example of that, just in terms of education, is that if you don't finish high school in this country, you live on average, all other things being equal, six years less than someone who graduates college. But it's not just people living in deep poverty who are affected by the gap in longevity. If you're middle class, your life expectancy is less than that of the 1% as well. Some people think it's just poor people versus rich people. Rich people live longer and are healthier and poor people are not. It's actually quite a gradient. I mean, that's one of the research advances of the last 20 years, that many of these social factors like income and education, they play out over the whole social gradient. I mean, it's true that the poorer or the less educated you are, the lower your life expectancy is and the sicker you will be. 
but it's graded as you move up. So people in the middle class, they do better on these things as lower income and lower educated people, but not nearly as well as those at the top. So we're all in this boat to some degree. It's not just a rich, poor thing. Now, some of this may be no surprise. People in poverty obviously don't have the resources of the well-to-do and don't have access to as much health care as money can buy. People with higher incomes and higher education, and those things really go together and are tightly woven together. They have more resources, so they can obviously get better medical care, they can afford healthier foods, they can go to fitness centers, all those kinds of things that having better income and higher education provides. People who are lower income have less access to adequate and affordable health care. And often because of cultural differences, the health care may not be appropriate for their particular needs. Second, and this has been widely publicized, especially recently, that people who are lower income have much poorer diets and as a result have much poorer health. American adults who are in poverty, for example, are more than five times as likely to report being in fair or poor health as adults with income who are at the higher end of the income spectrum. It's well known that lower income people are more likely to be obese than the upper class, and that's a direct result of a poor diet. Some people say that's a choice, but Kindig says far from always. People do need to pay attention to their own behaviors. I mean, there's no question about that, and we all have to do that. I had oatmeal this morning instead of ham and eggs, but particularly with people of lower income and lower educational background, the ability to make those good choices is difficult. For example, Reich says it's hard to have a healthy diet when you live in a food desert where affordable, nutritious food is simply unavailable. That's how it is in many inner cities. They also not only have fewer quality food stores, but most poor people lack access to either public or private transportation, which makes it more difficult for them to get to markets which have better quality and more affordable food. When I was working in Michigan between 1999 and 2008, I did some work in Detroit. And at the time, anyway, I don't know if things have changed, but at the time in Detroit, there were two supermarkets in the entire city, which had a population then of over 900,000 people. Reich says those who are most seriously affected by a poor diet are children. A lack of nutritious food at the beginning of life contributes to shortening it. It's been established that hunger, chronic hunger, particularly in the first three years of life, has dramatic implications for children's future physical and mental health, for their academic achievement, for their future economic productivity. There is documentation that it contributes to a wide range of health problems, slower psychological development, greater prevalence of learning disabilities. For example, children who grow up in poverty are more likely to be hospitalized. They are more likely to have oral health problems. They may be at higher risk for chronic conditions such as anemia and asthma. For adults, even though it's slightly less severe, it's still very serious. Inadequate health care and too little nutritious food are among the more obvious ways that a lack of money means fewer years of life. However, there are also a lot of indirect reasons. For example, Reich says employment makes a difference in lifespan. The jobs lower-income people have are more likely to be dangerous. Lower-income people are also less frequently employed, and when they are, their jobs are less secure. That's stressful. Studies have shown that the consistency of employment has health effects which last well into old age. 
Another factor is that people who are low income are more socially isolated and are more likely to be stigmatized on the basis of their income or race or ethnicity, all of which adds to their stress. And people who are low income live in neighborhoods where they're more likely to be exposed to a variety of pollutants and environmental toxins. They live in unsafe housing and in more dangerous neighborhoods, which restrict the opportunity to get outside, get exercise, you know, for children to play and increase their risk of being a victim of violence. All of that creates stress, and Reich says stress is often underestimated as a threat to our health and lifespans. It's been well established that chronic stress, particularly is a major factor that contributes to higher rates of cardiovascular disease, including heart attack and stress and diabetes, among other serious ailments. I mean, everybody's life, especially today, has stress, but people who are poor or near poor in terms of official statistics experience, for all the reasons I just mentioned, a much greater chronicity and intensity of stress. And studies have shown that stress produces increased levels of cortisol, And excessive cortisol in our blood causes a greater likelihood of developing those cardiovascular and other chronic diseases, also of developing them earlier in life, even in childhood, and that leads to an accelerated aging process. And these people also have an increased severity and more rapid progression of these diseases. Poverty takes its toll on the other end of the age spectrum as well. Among the elderly, nearly one-third of the households that are elderly have to choose each month between purchasing food and paying for medical care. And over one-third of those households choose between buying food and paying their utility bill. And these numbers are likely to grow as the population ages. Reich says the longevity gap is getting worse between rich Americans and everybody else. One reason is that these days, very few middle and lower class people have much economic security. You may be middle class today, but that's no guarantee you will be tomorrow. He says poverty today is deeper and more persistent than it's been in some time. More individuals and families are chronically poor, which means that they remain poor for a year or more. And more individuals and families experience what policymakers call deep poverty. And perhaps the most dramatic statistic of all is that about 60% of the entire population of the United States experiences an episode of poverty during their lives of one year or more. And about three quarters of the population experiences a year of near poverty. For African Americans, the statistic is even more striking. It's over 90%. And we know, as I've said before, that an extended episode of poverty, particularly in childhood, and the early life adversity which accompanies it has a long-term negative effect on a person's health, mental health, and life chances. So what can be done to help close the gap? Some advocates say if income among the lowest is the problem, then raise the minimum wage. It would be helpful, but it would not be sufficient on its own. But to have a sustainable impact on the longevity gap, we need to do a lot of other things. We need to provide accessible and affordable health care with an emphasis on primary care and preventive care for everybody. We need to make our workplaces safer. We need to give all children a quality education and a quality preschool experience. 
so they can achieve their full potential. And we need to eliminate the structural barriers that create stress by perpetuating inequality on the basis of things like race, ethnicity, gender, and social class. Reich contends that a whole variety of remedies will be needed to raise life expectancies among lower-income people and the middle class as well. Those include tax policy and social security. Yes, people also need to take responsibility for their own actions, but they can't make healthy choices if barriers mean they're out of reach. Lifestyle does determine a great deal of our lifespan, but we're not always free to choose the way we live. You can find out more about all of our guests on our website, RadioHealthJournal.net. I'm Reed Pence. Radio Health Journal returns with medical notes in just a moment. When your blood, tissue, or biopsy is sent to the lab, it's examined by a doctor you may never meet, but who may make a life-and-death diagnosis. That doctor is a pathologist. A pathologist is a physician whose unique skills are critical factors in your health care. Dr. Richard Friedberg is the president of the College of American Pathologists. Pathologists are the scientists of medicine. We convert medical data from a tissue sample into usable medical information by asking the right questions. The most important questions are the ones that have not been asked. Pathologists ask questions like, what further tests should be run? What other diagnoses should be considered? What do we not see that should be there? And we must constantly look back to improve health by asking about those that don't get well, as well as those who do. This culture of rigorous thought and curiosity drives pathologists, to be precise, to ask and answer those extra questions and to get your lab results right. For more information, go to yourpathologist.org. Medical Notes this week. A new report from the Surgeon General declares that drug and alcohol addiction is a public health crisis rivaling any other in the last 50 years. The report finds that more than 25 million people in the United States are currently using illegal drugs or misusing prescription drugs, and more than 65 million of us binge drink that's a quarter of the adult and adolescent population. The report estimates the total cost of alcohol misuse and illicit drug use at nearly $450 billion a year. We'll have a report next week on reasons for optimism despite those findings. Cancer of the throat and tongue is sharply up among American men, and experts say changing sexual practices are to blame. A report in the Journal of Infectious Diseases shows that oral cancer in men rose by more than 60% between 2011 and 2015. The vast majority of those cases can be attributed to the human papillomavirus, or HPV, which is often transmitted during oral sex. And finally, there's a pretty good chance that the last time you had fish at your local restaurant, what you ordered isn't what you got. A study in the journal Conservation Letters finds that nearly a third of the time, seafood in restaurants and supermarkets is actually something other than what's on the label. Researchers say the substituted fish is often more common and more sustainable than the fish on the menu. But even so, it's usually priced higher than the real thing. Stores and restaurants are not necessarily trying to defraud you. They often don't know that they've been duped as well. And that's Medical Notes this week. More in a moment. Chronic pain affects nearly 100 million Americans. For these patients, the condition is a heavy burden that consumes their life, taking a mental and physical toll. Unfortunately, many chronic pain patients are unsure where to turn after other treatments have done little to relieve their pain. 
For many of these patients, the latest advancement in spinal cord stimulation can offer meaningful pain relief and an improved path forward. The FDA recently approved BURST-DR stimulation, a new therapy option for patients. Dr. Pankage Mehta of Pain Specialist of Austin tells us more about this new therapy from St. Jude Medical. My job as a pain specialist is to provide my patients therapy options that can alleviate chronic pain and improve their quality of life. Burst-DR stimulation is different than other spinal cord stimulation therapies. It was created by doctors to mimic naturally occurring patterns in the brain, which can address both their emotional and physical response to chronic pain. To take the next step to learn more about Burst-DR stimulation, go to PowerOverYourPain.com. That's PowerOverYourPain.com. Implantation of a spinal cord stimulation system can involve risk, such as painful stimulation, loss of pain relief, and surgical risks, such as paralysis, during the implantation procedure. Patients should talk to their physician to determine if spinal cord stimulation therapy is right for them. Thank you for listening to Radio Health Journal, a production of MediaTracks Communications. If you enjoyed this week's show, please leave a review on iTunes or share it with a friend. You can find more Radio Health Journal stories about health, science, and technology on iTunes, Stitcher, and at RadioHealthJournal.net.